Hey everybody, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. It's January 15th, 2016. Hope you guys had a very safe and happy and enjoyable holiday season and new year. I'm very glad to be back doing the podcast in uh, lovely 2016. Um, I appreciate all the questions and comments and uh, kind words that I get from you guys on email, so I just wanted to say thanks for that. Uh, I've been getting some questions recently about uh, different frequency issues. So I've got a couple shows planned talking about frequencies and EQ, uh, and today I'm going to start tackling uh, one of the most common issues that uh, people ask me about and that I experience myself and that uh, some engineers, uh, some friends of mine that are also engineers, we've you know, uh, pined over this exact issue uh, over uh, drinks and many uh, heated discussions as to why this exists. And today we're talking about low-end buildup. So first things first, I wanted to mention that I've recently uh, posted two videos on the YouTube channel. And these two videos are about uh, drum editing. Now, I've got one that's specifically targeted for Nuendo users, so I'm not sure how many of you out there are using Nuendo, specifically Nuendo 7, uh, but since I'm a Nuendo 7 user, I thought I'd contribute to the community and uh, post a video about that. But I've got another video that talks about slip editing, and uh, it should apply in some form or fashion. You might have to sort of adjust it to your own DAW, but the same basic principles apply, and you can sort of watch it and uh, and and sort of see the equivalent uh, that might exist in your own program, whether it's Reaper, Pro Tools, uh, etc. So, um, so give those a watch. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you have any questions. You can go to YouTube.com/slash/recording-lounge, and you should be able to find those videos there. Uh, you, there's also quite a few other videos that I've posted so far. Um, feel free to check them out. Subscribe. And, um, yeah, I really appreciate the, uh, the support I've been getting for the YouTube channel. We have, uh, 282 subscribers as of, uh, right now. And, uh, so that's really exciting. I'm very, uh, very excited to be doing a YouTube channel. I hope to be able to do many more videos this year. Uh, similar to the podcast, I'm trying to sort of offset, uh, I, I try to get out one podcast a month. If I'm lucky, I can get out two. Um, but I'm trying to offset the time in between with YouTube videos. So uh, make sure to check out those and uh, enjoy. So today we're talking a little bit about low-end buildup. Now, what do I mean by low-end buildup? Um, so let me paint a picture for you. Me and a friend of mine who's, a, who's an engineer and we've been good friends for a long time, we're sitting around over some drinks and, and pining over the question, why is it that everything seems to have so much low end? Um, you know, obviously you're going to have things like room noise and rumble and you're going to have, you know, some of the obvious things that you're going to high pass filter. And sure, in most situations, we can use high pass filters on almost every track and it's, you know, going to be fine. But but aside from noise, you know, what? Uh, why is there so much low-end buildup? And why do we have to take so much of it out? Why do we have to, you know, remove all this gorgeous low-end that we had? And why is it that sometimes the microphones that actually sound a little bit thinner uh, or not as full or big uh, actually end up working better in the mix? So we're going to tackle all these things. I've got 
10 different points that I'm going to talk about of why there is so much low-end buildup and, uh, and why mixes sound the way they do and why we have to cut more low-end than maybe it seems necessary. And uh, so let's get started. So I want to first clarify when I'm talking about low end buildup, I'm really talking about a certain type of shape uh, that we tend to do. Uh, so imagine, if you will, a plug in GUI um, like a FabFilter Pro Q, you know, an, a graphical or paragraphic type EQ where, you know, you can see a visual display uh, of what's actually happening. Okay, so. Imagine a center point, like 500 hertz, and you have 20 hertz on the left, 20k on the far right. Uh, and imagine doing a very wide, sweeping shelf cut in the low end. Well, that shape and sound is nearly identical to doing the same type move in the top end, uh, you know, if they were equally spa spaced. It's kind of like doing a tilt shelf, okay? Uh, like the Tonalux tilt or the tilt shelf that's available in FabFilter Pro-Q. Um, so... Those types of sounds are, are almost identical, you know, cutting low end and boosting top end in the exact same wide fashion, um, you know, depending on the points, can be basically the same exact move. If you follow the podcast or, for a while, you might, uh, you might know that I'm not uh, a subscriber to the belief that cutting EQ sounds better than boosting. It's a complete myth. Um, debate with me all you want and I can prove you wrong. <laughs> um, but it, it's really a myth. Um, the, both boosting and cutting are perfectly fine and you should not be afraid to do either of them. If you like something, boost it. If you don't like it, cut it. That's as simple as it is. You know, don't don't make your mind go in circles trying to, you know, do some ridiculous uh, EQ move out of, oh, I have to cut. You know, that's just ridiculous. You know, do whatever sounds good. Um, and, and plus, from a scientific perspective, I mean, in terms of phase relationships, it's a total myth that, you know, cutting does not introduce phase, uh, phase issues because it totally does the exact same way, just the opposite degree of phase. Uh, so, for example, if a boost of 5 dB adds a 90 degree phase shift, a cut of 5, 5 dB would add a negative 90 degree phase shift. I mean, it's identical. So, anyway... Point being, there's a tilt that we have where we're cutting low end and boosting top end. And I, uh, over drinks, we're sitting here, me and my friend uh, who's a mastering engineer, you know, and we were both saying things like, you know, I find that I never really have to add low end to things. If anything, I'm taking it away. But I also find that I'm boosting top end on things. You know, we boost top end on a vocal or on a snare or on our overheads or on, you know, whatever. And it just feels like, there's got to be something that can be done about this. Is that just the sound of modern records or, you know, what is it that we're actually doing here? Why do we tend to make these types of moves often? Why do we tend to cut low mids and cut lows and boost highs and, you know, boost high mids or, well, depending on the situation, how you look at it, um, you know, why is it? Why do we keep doing those same moves? Is that just what we have to do? Uh, you know, and it seems kind of ridiculous. So we sat down and we kind of pondered this topic for a while and we did a bunch of tests uh, with gear and we did a, some tests with different microphones and we kept finding ourselves saying things like, well, that mic sounds better on its own, but that mic would probably work better in a mix. 
And I don't like that, you know? I don't like that frustrating uh, situation where you're sitting there making a compromise for something to sound mediocre on its own but great in the mix. Well, what if something needs to be on its own? Are you supposed to mic it up with something else? I think hopefully you guys understand the frustration that I'm talking about in this situation where, you know, there just seems to be a really difficult time getting the low end right and why there's so much of it and why we have to keep cutting it and why we have to keep boosting top end. So we came up with a list of 10 reasons why we have too much low end and what can be done about it. So uh, let's, let's just go for it. These are in no particular order. Number 10, clearing space. Okay, so modern mixes tend to have more stuff in them, all right? And that's just a part of the way it is. You know, we have more tracks than we used to have. You know, back in the day, they didn't have to do that as much because they only had so many tracks. Um, So these days, you know, a modern rock mix can have anywhere from 20 to 120 tracks. I mean, there's really no limit now. And so... There's just more stuff. There are more microphones for drums. There are more microphones for, you know, this and that. There are doubles. There are backing vocals. There are, you know, three tracks of guitars and all this stuff. And so there's just more stuff. So a lot of times we have to cut low end and boost top end to create space. We're, we're cutting out a bunch of stuff in the low end and in the low mids so that we have room for everything. Now, that one's probably the most obvious uh, and doesn't necessarily even explain explain why, but it's true. I mean, the way that our mixes have developed, the way that music has developed, it's changed the techniques that we use to make that happen and to make it work. And Therefore, it's changed the sound of music and the way that we process instruments. Um, So that's actually a pretty important part. As simple and obvious as it may seem, music has changed. Um, Stuff has gotten more... Uh, we're, we're trying to be cleaner and clearer and more defined. We want our music to sound big and full, but we also want it to be clear and we want everything to have space. You want to be able to pick out instruments. Um... So that's one of those big reasons why we're trying to clear space. Number nine, this is something that we call the big fat bias. All right, so this is something that occurs while tracking. Now, this isn't like a common term. This is just what me and my friends call it, the big fat bias. So what this is, is when tracking things, these days we're often tracking things individually. So what that means is um, everybody tends to want their sound to be big and full. And so we often are dialing in our tones out of context. So for example, we'll record drums and we'll try to make them sound as big as possible. Like we're recording drums to a scratch track, right? And we'll try to make these drums sound big. And then we try to record bass over that. And at any given time, our brain, it's almost as if our brain is trying to compensate for the lack of every other instrument. And it's saying, oh, it's not full enough. It doesn't sound like a full mix. It, frequencies are missing. You know, it, it, the low end is weak. And so we try to make the drum sound big and then the bass sound big. And then we add the guitars. And we try to make that sound big. And then we, try, we record keys and make those sound big. And we try to make, you know, so we're listening to these things and dialing in tones for things out of context, which really isn't helpful. And if you think back to a lot of the recordings, um, 
of the 60s, 70s that we know and love, and even 80s, 90s, uh, you know, and well, I mean, there's still live recordings today, but a lot of those recordings were done live. And so they were dialing in these tones in context. So it wasn't as strange to say something like, oh, wow, you know, that's got way too much low end because you had context by which to gauge that low end. If you're trying to gauge your low end based on a scratch track, well, the scratch track's probably not going to have a ton of low end in it. Uh, you know, it's just going to be one instrument or an instrument and a vocal. And so it's a little harder to make a good, honest, like, hey, this is way too much low end when there's nothing else going on. You know, it's very easy to have too much low end in those situations. Now multiply that by five instruments and you've got something with way too much low end. Okay, so that's what I call and what we call the big fat bias while tracking. So the solution to this is, well, try to demo out the song a little bit more. Try to do a scratch guitar, scratch vocal, maybe even a scratch bass. Uh, you know, maybe try to add a couple guitars. Try to demo out the song rather than just do a single scratch track. I know it can be annoying and I know it takes more time. And sometimes it's not in the timeline or budget, but... If you can, it can be really helpful in gauging the context uh, of what it is you're trying to do as a whole. Now, you can also, if, again, if it's in the budget and in the timeline, you can have the band track live and then just replace things as you go. Um, that's a very common thing in Nashville. That's a very common thing. It's been a common thing for years and years and years um, where the band will go into the studio, they'll track live, and they'll just redo the stuff that they weren't happy with. So even if the only thing they keep is the drums, at least they were able to... Because some people will say, oh, well, the only reason they did that is just to capture that live vibe. And that might be true, but even at the end of the day, even if they only keep the drums and they end up doing everything else individually, at the very least, they were able to dial in the drums in context and they were able to get some sort of scratch track for everything that they can use while recording. And I think most of us would agree we play better when we're playing to a full band. Even if it's not the final tracks, you know, it's a little awkward sometimes for a bass player to be playing to, like, a, a simple electric guitar track and the drums only. You know, we play better when we're playing the songs in context. Uh, I just, I just can't... I don't know if there's any proof otherwise, but, you know, I really think we do. I really think us as musicians play better in context, and we can dial in better tones in context. All right, number eight. This is uh, not, a, it wouldn't be a recording lounge podcast without me talking about room issues, right? So obviously today, records are made in all kinds of different spaces. They're made all over the world in bedrooms and in concert halls and in world-class studios and in small hometown studios. They're made in living rooms and they're made in churches. They're made everywhere now. And so, sure, this isn't that golden era of recording anymore where if you're in a band and you're making a record, you're probably going to be at one of the best studios in the world because that was a thing at one time. You know, the, the, a lot of the recordings that we know and love were recorded in some of the best studios in the history of the business. And they had that luxury. 
Nowadays, we don't have that luxury. And when we're in smaller rooms or in not so great rooms or in untreated or poorly treated rooms, we're probably going to have more low end buildup, low end cancellation, you know, low end issues with our instruments. Now, even if you close mic things, this is something I've probably said a dozen times on this podcast, but even if you close mic something, it doesn't remove the room issues. It just sort of reduces the ratio that you hear. Hear them Now, you can't put a mic six inches away from every single source on a recording and expect yourself to have uh, a, a nice, clean sound. And we'll get to that for the next point. Um, but the point is, back in the day, they were at great studios with the best gear, the cream of the crop gear, not the clones of the good stuff, but the good stuff. And they were in studios designed by brilliant people. They were large rooms, large, well-designed, well-treated rooms. And they were operated by some of the best engineers in the history of our time. So today is different. We have different environments uh, in which to make records, and we make it work. But room issues are a problem. And uh, typically when in smaller rooms, you're going to get low-end buildup. And again, whether the mic is close or not is irrelevant. They're still going going to be probably more low-end than is really needed. Now, in certain situations, you could have a lot of low-end cancellation, which could work to your benefit or maybe not. But uh, the, the truth of the matter is if your low end is building up like crazy and especially your low mids, it very well could be uh, partially caused by the room that you're in. So I highly recommend getting your live room treated. A lot of people uh, say, oh, well, I don't need to treat my live room as much because, you know, I want it to have some ambience. If you're worried about losing the ambience, then you need to get something with a with a loose membrane, uh, something like uh, the GIK flex range traps. Now, these these types of traps are uh, Ethan Weiner over at Real Traps designed one, too, with a membrane design. Basically, these types of traps are designed to reflect frequencies above a certain, uh, certain point and absorb more frequencies below that point. So they still leave ambience and life in the room. GIK Acoustics calls them flex range traps, and they really do work. Uh, they absorb far more low end than they do mids or highs. So you can get your low end tightened up and you don't really have to suffer a huge blow to the high end, making your room dull and unenjoyable to even be in. So check those out. I really think it can help. The same goes for, uh, for you know, control rooms or booths. You know, these types of things can be really helpful in that. Now, uh, if it's in a booth, I would recommend doing full range traps, but for live rooms, you know, low end issues are probably still the biggest issue that people tend to have. It's, you know, the ambience is something you can pretty easily uh, combat, you know, with with two inch and four inch panels. Those help absorb the mids and highs just fine. But the low end is really, really difficult to fix. So I highly recommend investing in that. All right, number seven. So this is uh, sort of what we were just talking about briefly, uh, is the combination of close miking things, cardioid mics, and proximity effect. So this is sort of a three for one. Um, now, 
back in the day, and I'm, I keep saying back in the day, but that's because uh, this conversation partly came up like, you, know, you don't really hear about, you know, a lot of the bigwig guys that have done the records that, you know, uh, that we all know and love as like the iconic records. You never really heard of them talking about low-end problems. You know, why do we have more now? You know, why do we have... So that's part of the equation. And so... If you look at pictures of Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or any of these great old artists recording, um, you know, the mics aren't nearly as close on things as we have them today, partially because a lot of the microphone technology they had back in that time was not as durable as we have now. And you might damage a microphone if it was that close. And also because, you know, again, they were in great studios with great musicians and they might not need to mic up every part of the kit. They might only put three or four mics on the entire drum kit and say that's the sound. But today, part of that modern sound that we tend to like is having things individually mic'd and also mic'd fairly close. Um, Part of it is because we really like that in-your-face sound. Well, if you put a mic in someone's face, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get proximity effect and low-end buildup. If you put a mic right up on a guitar amp or right up on a snare drum or right up on a tom, you're going to get proximity effect and uh, low-end buildup. Now, a little tip about proximity effect. Proximity effect, I've done a lot of research on this recently to in, in preparation for this podcast, and from looking at a bunch of different uh, frequency response graphs from various microphones, I've sort of created an average, and what I've found is that proximity effect starts to build up, depending on the mic, somewhere between 200 and 300 hertz is where it starts. It goes all the way down to 20 hertz, and again, that of course depends on the mic, um, but it, it rises at about 6 dB per octave. Uh, and again, it slightly changes depending on the mic. Um, and and also depending on the microphone, it starts about a meter away from the mic, which actually is quite far if you think about it. I mean, when's the last time you mic'd up something from farther than a meter? Um, that's actually quite far for a lot of instruments. You know, acoustic guitar, amps, vocals. You know, we rarely think about micing those things that far away. We often think about a foot, 18 inches, 6 inches, you know, somewhere in that region. So proximity effect can be very drastic in certain mics and in other microphones. Say, for example, the Electro Voice RE20 has a very tame proximity effect. You can be right up on that mic and the proximity effect is really not that strong. But other microphones, the proximity effect is drastic. And because we like isolation and we we like the ability to um, to isolate individual things and tweak individual things, you know, we also tend to like cardioid mics. Um, we don't use as many omnis as uh, as we have in the past. In you know yesteryear, we don't use as many figure eight mics aside from ribbons, but we're not talking about those really right now. Um, you know, so we use a lot more cardioid microphones these days. It is the most popular pattern. It is the most common pattern, and it helps us get that intimate, in-your-face, upfront sound at a cost. You will probably have low-end buildup, and um, depending on how close you are, and depending on the type of mic, it will it will alter how much low-end buildup is achieved. Um, 
couple that with this next one that we'll talk about and it gets it can get disastrous. So um, basically the solution here, try to back up the mics a little bit. You know, when you first think, okay, this is probably a good uh, good place for the mic when you listen to it and you're like, okay, sounds good. Maybe try just backing it up a couple inches more and just, you know, just see how that sounds. Try backing it up a little bit more, maybe six inches or a foot more than you think and see how it sounds. Does it completely destroy the rest of the sound? Do you get too much ambience? Do you, you know, or is it actually still good? You know, don't don't think in your mind, all right, I want this really upfront sound. I have to put the, you know, the mic six inches away from whatever it is or two inches away or a foot. You know, try pulling the mic back um, and just see how it sounds. You know, give yourself that opportunity um, to, to, to just experiment more with mic placement. Uh, I know that it's very easy to say, even on a guitar amp, like, you know, you put a mic right up next to the grill, it sounds pretty darn good. Because, yeah, it does. It does sound good. But make an effort to try to pull that mic back a little bit and just see how it changes the sound. See if you like it. You know, see if it's something that will help uh, help tame that low-end build up a little bit. All right, so number six. This one goes directly in line um, with, the, with the previous one. Microphones today... Uh, gear today in, in general is completely full range, 20 Hertz to 20 kilohertz. I mean, imagine if a microphone or a converter came out or something like that, that said, you know, a frequency response was 50 Hertz to 18 K. Most people would be like, what? What? Are you serious? What a piece of crap, which is really ridiculous because most of the time, I mean, we don't need all that low end. We don't need much above 18K. We don't need much below 40 hertz or 50 hertz. Uh, there's, you know, really only a couple things need to exist down there. Um, but a lot of our gear these days is made more extended. It has more low end. It has more top end. The low end goes all the way down to the limit and the top end goes all the way up to the limit, right? And partially that's a great thing. We have way way higher fidelity uh, in our digital pieces than we used to have. Our microphones have lower noise. You know, they have less distortion. And in one way, that's good. In another way, it's bad. But in general, you know, you have to be very careful about some of the things that you see and how things are marketed. Because, you know, if somebody markets something a certain way as having a full, fat, warm sound, you know, of course, that sounds appealing. But realize that only a few things in your mix really need a full, fat, warm sound. You know, there are a lot of microphones out there on the market that have way too much low end, and they also a lot of microphones that have way too much top end. Um, and sometimes the microphone that has a more prominent mid-range or something that is, uh, is a little bit more um, just defined in the mids and in the highs rather than having this sort of like super extended top and big fat full quote warm bottom you know something like that might not really fit in the mix that well and they're going for that impress me factor you know they want you to put it up on your voice and say oh my gosh my voice sounds huge when it's like okay again that's out of context and 
You know, it, it's ridiculous to me to design a microphone to sound good on its own. Uh, it's ridiculous to me to design a piece of gear that only sounds good on a couple of things or that only looks good on paper and that doesn't actually work in context, which is why there are certain microphones, for example, like the AKG 451 that has been in the industry for years and years. And if you hear it on its own, often you'll say, wow, that's actually pretty bright. It doesn't have a lot of low end. It's really bright. But you put it on the, on the right acoustic guitar in the right situation, and it fits in the mix perfectly. Um, whereas if you heard that mic compared to a lot of other modern mics, you know, you, you often see this obsession in modern marketing for pro audio and prosumer gear that's talking about warm and full and fat. And in reality, that's not so much what we're in need of. You know, people think that fullness and fatness is what makes digital sound more analog. And that's just not true. I mean, we have more low-end capability now in the digital realm than we ever had in analog, especially because of vinyl. Uh, I mean, vinyl had straight-up limits to how much low-end could be written onto that piece of vinyl. So it's just not, it's just a myth, you know, that older recordings, uh, that like Motown recordings had all this low end, right? It's a myth. It really didn't have this huge full fat sound. In fact, a lot of those recordings have a pretty tight bottom end. It's really the smoothness of the top end that people are craving. You know, it's not brittle and harsh up in the high mids and highs. It's not really necessarily a full huge fat bottom end. It's a smoothness in the highs. And part of that's could be caused by tape part of that could be caused by the vinyl you know there's a lot of factors that be, could be caused you know that could be part of that but uh could be that they use more ribbon mics it could be you know a lot of things but the point is don't get caught into the pleasure trap of big full fat warm you know when used in marketing because often you don't really need all that low end um so be careful about the gear that you buy. Really try to hear it and use it. You know, hear it in context and don't don't balk at something and say, oh gosh, it sounds really bright or thin. You know, don't be afraid of that. You know, instead, you should be afraid of something that sounds huge because 90% of the time, it probably won't work in the context of a mix. You'll probably end up cutting all that low end out. Now, if you're looking for two microphones to record a solo piano and that's what your goal is to record solo piano and nothing else, sure, you might need a pair of mics with a big full extended bottom end. But if you're recording anything in context of a band, of a big full production, you know, even with a couple of members, you probably don't need as much big fat full low end as you think you do. All right, number six. Uh, this is something I just call the modern tilt. Now, the modern tilt is partly, I mean, it's its a part of this equation too, and it's a simple one, but basically, modern recordings are brighter. They just are. Uh, you know, you can listen to recordings from the 60s and 70s and 80s, and as time goes on, things get brighter and clearer, and that's just how it is, okay? So, the the element of why, you know, why do we need to cut low end and why do we add top end? Partially, it's just 
a modern thing. That's just part of the sound of more modern music. Now, there are definitely recordings that come out today that aren't bright, and that's great. Uh, And there are definitely recordings that come out today that aren't fat or that are super fat. Uh, And the good thing is about today in, in, in DAWs and all the gear we have available to us now, we can choose. We can choose to make a recording a little bit darker or a little bit brighter. Um, we can choose to make something fatter or not as fat. You know, we, we have to adjust our priorities a little bit depending on the, uh, in the individual band or song that we're working on, but we have that option. So keep in mind that one factor in why we have to cut low end and why we add top end is that's just the sound. That's the sound of a lot of the stuff that we know and like. Number five. So we now are working in no limits DAWs, which means a lot of things really, but you know, the DAW does not add or remove sound. You know, it doesn't do anything for you. Whereas if you were working on a console or you're working with tape or you're working with these sorts of uh, outboard pieces or these microphones, they're going to have a little bit more of a distinctive sound. For example, 1176s and LA2s and a lot of these really popular compressors that have been used for decades have a distinct character to them. And part of that sound is adding some sort of sparkle or a liveliness on the top end or sometimes in the upper mids. And it depends, of course, on the unit that you have. Um, but uh, I find that uh, a lot of 1176s will add sort of this upper high frequency thing, an addition that actually tightens up the low end and boosts sort of this airiness on the vocal and this sort of edge up in the high mids and highs. And so these days, a lot of people are, I mean, I track with a lot of analog gear, but not everybody does. And so when we're not running through additional pieces of gear, you know, we might not be getting some of the benefits of that actual character and sound of those units. Um, now, again, those things can be recreated, but it's just one more, you know, thing that you got to pile on the list of why there's not enough top end, why there's too much bottom end. You know, some of these analog pieces, in in, in addition, um, especially the older units, had limits to them, meaning their frequency response might only be 70 hertz to 15k on some of these old pieces. Now, it didn't really matter in those times, but today we'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, it only goes to 70 hertz. So we have the reissues now that have cleaner op amps and less color, and they're not as vibey. They don't have as much saturation. You know, they go all the way down to 20 hertz. They're adapted for the modern workflow, and that's good and bad. One of the reasons that it can be bad, though, is that you're starting to allow a little more low end, little less top end is boosted, which is something that we actually like about those older units. And sure, a lot of older units actually will cut top end and boost low end. You know, it depends, of course, on the EQ or compressor or whatever it may be. But uh, a lot of the popular pieces that we like uh, are known for adding sort of an edge or an airiness up top on the source um, that you could construe in your mind as top end or high mids, which of course equates to a tilt, which means 
it sounds like there's less low end. It's a tighter low end because you have more of that high mids. You know, that it's like that that whole tilt thing, the, the yin and yang of EQ and, and of tone. So that's one more factor. And then this ties into the next one, number four, which is something that we call the console conundrum. Now, uh, over drinks, we're sitting there thinking, okay, we've come up with quite a few ideas so far. What about analog consoles? Now, uh, the you know, records have been made on consoles for decades and for good reason. They sound great. They're a very centralized workflow. Everything's right there in front of you. The EQ's there. Your sends are there. Your faders are right in front of you. You know, there's no clicking. You can use two hands. You can use ten hands if you've got, you know, all those people. But um, the, the truth of the matter is uh, consoles had a sound just like these analog compressors and things like that had. And they also had, they were also more prone to saturation. And one of the things about saturation is that saturation is essentially, and distortion is essentially a collection of harmonics. Now, harmonics are higher than the fundamentals, okay, in general. Uh, They are higher than the fundamental pitches. So you're not adding more low end per se, you're adding higher harmonics uh, that add sort of upper frequency things in the mids and the highs and the high mids and all these things. So if you have a little bit of saturation across 48 channels of a tracking desk, and then that is sent to a mixer who's mixing on a console, and there's a little bit of saturation across his 48 channels, and then there's a little bit of saturation from the mix bus and the, you know, the mix bus compressor, and then maybe he puts an EQ on the, you know, so it can compile the console conundrum, as we called it, you know, that, that when using analog consoles, this problem probably didn't come up as much. Um, because they, each unit, you know, had its own distinct character and certain channel strips might have different tones to them and they would have different degrees of saturation. And when you're running in the line amps on a console, you know, that might alter the sound. And, and so putting up a console, I mean, I remember hearing a story. It was, uh, I believe it was from Jack Joseph Puig. I'm sorry if I got this wrong, but, um, he was talking about how he was doing a record and, uh, one of his mentors was saying this record needs to be mixed at this studio. And he mentioned a very specific place and said, that's the studio. They have that console. It's going to work. And, uh, part the moral of the story was basically Jack Joseph Puig tried to mix the record at a couple of other studios and it just wasn't working. Whereas when he went to this one specific studio that his mentor said from day one, that's the right place to mix this record. He put all the tracks up on the console and boom, there it was. And it just sounded great right off the get-go through that console. And that's something that we don't experience as often because our DAWs are clean as a whistle. They don't add or remove anything that we don't want them to. Whereas these consoles had a sound and depending on you know, what modules were in it, who made it, what year it was, you know, what factory the parts were in, I mean, they would have a sound. And depending on what it was. I mean, it was like an instrument, you know? You could get two strats off the line or two Les Pauls or two Telecasters, and one might sound a little bit different. It's going to sound maybe a little bit brighter, a little bit warmer, a little bit smoother. And so these consoles were like living, breathing things. They were an instrument, especially back in the day where the QC was not as tight as it is now. You know, nowadays when we make consoles, like API makes consoles still, 
you know, they can have much tighter tolerances on everything. And so five different consoles that come off the line will effectively sound identical. Whereas back in the day, there might be a console that just sounded amazing. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the documentary Sound City. Uh, and Dave Grohl's talking about the Neve console that they had at Sound City. And, you know, it's just something about that board just sounded incredible. And, and everyone agreed. They just thought, man, this sounds good. There's something about it. Now, whatever that was specifically, we're not really sure, you know, but uh, they know that it had a certain sound. So the console issue comes from, you know, well, what if running through all these different lineup stages and these different transformers and these different, you know, uh, modules on the console, you know, if each one added just a tiny little bit of saturation in it, or maybe they, maybe they had their own filtering in them that actually was removing low end, or maybe there was sort of an inherent curve to the console where, you know, you put it up and it's like, wow, something that's run through this console, you know, like if you ran test tones or sign sweeps through a console channel, if it would actually look flat on the way out or if it would have a certain tilt to it. I remember reading another article from a mastering engineer talking about how he's had issues dealing with records mixed on Neve consoles because of the uh, very strong low end and how he much prefers getting records mixed on SSL consoles because they're tighter in the low end. So there's obviously something to this argument, the console conundrum as we dubbed it, um, where different consoles have different sounds. And the SSL console, if you you know remember, it has kind of developed as like the modern console sound. I mean, in this in the eighties, it's it sort of like overtook the world and the 90s was like if you weren't mixing on an SSL console then you weren't a real mixer I mean the SSL consoles became like the standard and a lot of big name dudes to this day still are mixing on SSL consoles and for a reason they have a sound that they like that can get the results that they want faster and easier and more intuitively. And perhaps part of that is just the sound of that desk. So that's just one more factor to consider. Number three, this is something that we've dubbed the guiltless mixer. So let's talk about what I mean by this. So let's say uh, we're working on a big budget record. Okay, so something with $100,000, $200,000, a million dollars for all we know, big budget, major label record. Chances are, 90% of the time, there's going to be a team of people involved, a team of engineers. You know, it's not going to be just one guy. It might be one, but if anything, it's not going to be the same guy who recorded it uh, as the guy who's going to mix it, as the guy who's going to master it. They're going to be different people. So at the very least, there will probably be three separate people. Now, in modern times with our lower budget records and especially with the home studio boom and the project studio explosion, um, uh, people are recording and mixing on their own and they're sometimes even mastering their own stuff. 
And that can be an issue when we consider the guiltless mixer situation. Now, what do we mean by that? So let's say you're recording, you're the engineer on this big budget project, and you've got a slew of outboard gear available to you, and you add, you know, a couple dB here and there, a couple dB on the kick, a couple dB on the snare, you're cutting some low end out of this and that, you're boosting top end on the vocal, maybe adding a little presence on the electric guitar, you're doing all this stuff, and then you've got this record, it sounds pretty good, you're like, man, this sounds great, then you're like, okay, let's send it off to mix. The mixer who in a big budget situation, 90% of the time, maybe 99% of the time, um, is a totally different person. For all he knows, um, these tracks are dry. He doesn't know which tracks had EQ on them. He doesn't know which tracks had compression other than what he can hear. Uh, he doesn't know what tracks had low end cut or boosted. He doesn't know what microphones were used. And so he feels no guilt about cutting low end or adding top end to, to a source, even if there was already three or four dB added while recording. Okay, so in the end, there might be eight dB added to a snare drum uh, that there was no guilt about because each person, you know, it's like it's like a lethal injection or something. You know, there's these three vials and no one knows who actually uh, gave the lethal dose. I mean, that's what it's like. And same thing goes for the mastering engineer. He gets the record and for all he knows, uh, you know, that's the mix. You know, he wasn't expecting it to necessarily be anything this way or that way. And the mastering engineer says, okay, well, sure, I'll do what I got to do. I got to cut a little bit of low end to clear some space and maybe boost a little top end with this fancy mastering EQ. And he feels no guilt, okay, because he doesn't have to look back and think, okay, well, I already put an EQ on the mix bus, or, man, I already boosted top end on that snare, or I already cut some low end on that snare, or, I, man, I high-passed that pretty high. He doesn't have to feel any of that, uh, that reminder in the back of his head. And I think this is a big factor um, that a lot of big-budget records are done by a team of people, by multiple people. And, uh, and a lot of the big-budget records are also done in studios with analog gear. Um, where when it's available so that they can use that stuff on the way in and they can record a vocal or a bass or a guitar or a snare or a drum set with EQ on every channel or at least a handful of the channels. And then when it comes time to mix, it's a, it's a new guy and it's already been printed on the track. You know, there's no, there's none of this bias. There's none of this holding back. There's none of this looking and seeing, oh, look, I added 4 dB. That's too much or whatever, you know? So this is something I'll keep reminding people of. And I've, I've said it on the podcast before, you know, you have to mix with your ears. You can't just look at the screen and see, oh man, I, I boosted 3 dB or I cut 3 dB. That's, that's too much, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it looks like a lot because that's often what we think, you know, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm not saying that I'm like impervious to this. I, I experience the same thing all the time because I often mix the records that I record. Um, and, but I find one of the reasons what's in interesting is, um, I had a mix come to me, oh, about six months ago where I felt like the mix came together very quickly. I really liked the sound of it. And I thought, man, that was really easy. Uh, it was recorded by a podcast listener. He sent it to me to mix. So after the mix was done, you know, I sent it to him. He was real happy with it. Uh, and, and I said, hey, well, tell me a little bit about the, uh, the recording of this. Because I, I thought the raw tracks sounded really good. 
So he goes on to tell me that he recorded it at a local studio, uh, that, you know, they used analog gear, they had analog EQs available and analog compressors. And, you know, I didn't know any of that, right? I didn't know any of that. I just assumed that they were really nice, really well-recorded tracks. And, uh, you know, so I felt no guilt. I mean, that was a big eye-opening moment for me hearing about that later because I thought, man, I remember adding quite a bit of EQ to, you know, whatever it was, the rack tom or the snare or whatever it was. But I have no idea. He could have added 10 dB for all I know. I, I could have been actually reversing something that he did, or I could have even been accentuating further something that he did. For all I know, you know, I, it, it doesn't even really matter. The point is um, that bias is real. And that thing is, it's very difficult to, to, get yourself out of. So it's one reason why I recommend after you finish recording, you know, try to mix in a completely separate session and also try to commit to things, you know, get yourself an analog EQ or an analog compressor, even if it's just one or two pieces, do something that you can experiment with on the way in, because then chances are by the time you go back to mix it, you won't really notice that anymore and you won't remember how much you did. And if anything, don't try to remember, you know, just turn the knobs until it sounds good. And same thing in the box when you're mixing and try to mix in a new session, you know, try to clear your head and, and start fresh. Don't try to, uh, don't try to salvage this sort of crazy tracking session full of tracks and stuff. Try to mix in a new, fresh, clean, organized session. And it's just one more factor. I really think it can help. Number two, the large diaphragm craze. So I find it really interesting that when you look on Vintage King or Sweetwater, any of these other places where you can purchase uh, mics and gear and things, how many more large diaphragm microphones there are than small diaphragm microphones. And I'm not really sure why that is. I'm assuming because, you know, a lot of these people are making microphones assuming that people will only have a couple and they might need sort of an all-purpose microphone because, yeah, a large diaphragm microphone is is pretty all-purpose. Um, you know, you're going to be able to capture something. You know, people are trying to make microphones that are good for everything. And again, it's kind of ridiculous. It's kind of like trying to make an amp that's good for every genre or a guitar that's good for every style of playing. It's, you know, why not just make things that are more specialized? But anyway, the point is there's sort of a large diaphragm craze and people are using large diaphragm dynamic mics on vocals and large diaphragm mics on, you know, kick drum and on overheads and on acoustic guitar and on all this stuff. And you know, even a lot of these microphones that people will see in pictures and things like that, like let's say watch looking at an old photo of someone using a big old Neumann vintage tube mic recording acoustic guitar, you know, that doesn't tell you anything about the sound really other than necessarily what it's capable of being. You know, a large diaphragm is going to have the ability to capture more low end than a smaller diaphragm. But a smaller diaphragm mic will often capture top end a little bit more articulately. However, that doesn't tell you really anything about the sound of the mic just by the diaphragm. Because, for example, an AKG C12 is a fairly bright mic. Same with the Telefunken 251. They're fairly bright mics. And especially from a distance, neither of those microphones are that full or fat when they're far away from something. They have a pretty tight low end. Now, when you get right up on them for vocals or when you close mic something with them, 
they sound really good. But when you put a 251 or a C12, you know, a foot, two feet, three feet, four feet, 10 feet from something, they don't really have a lot of low end. So what's interesting is there's this weird large diaphragm craze where people think, oh, large diaphragm, it must be better, right? Bigger must be better. Uh, but in truth, a lot of this point came because uh, we we found this old picture of Frank Sinatra recording his vocals with a small diaphragm microphone. Uh, now, sure, Frank Sinatra is very uh, commonly known for using a large diaphragm Neumann, you know, a U47 or a U48. But we saw a picture of him in the studio recording a song with a uh, with a small diaphragm. I think it was an AKG of some kind or, or maybe a small diaphragm Neumann. Um, you know, and we heard a recording of it, of that song, and it sounded just like Frank. You know, it didn't sound small or anything at all. And so what's interesting is, you know, you it's so easy to be obsessed with this idea of like, oh, bigger is better. Large diaphragms, they must capture more. Uh, in reality, they really just capture more low end or have the potential to capture more low end. Uh, and again, you might not even need that much low end. Um, so consider getting some more small diaphragm microphones in your arsenal. Um, now again, just because it's small diaphragm doesn't really mean it's going to be bright or thin. One of my favorite small diaphragm microphones is the Biodynamic MC930. I think it's called. Not to be confused with the Gefell uh, 930, whatever model that is, or maybe it's M930. Uh, but this is the small diaphragm Biodynamic MC930. This mic has a very extended low end and a very smooth top end for a small diaphragm mic. So, you know, you can't always go on the diaphragm size to tell you what it's going to sound like. But in truth, a lot of small diaphragm microphones are going to be a little bit more articulate, a little bit tighter on the bottom, you know, a little bit clearer, maybe even a little bit boosted in the top more than a large diaphragm microphone might be. Uh, so don't get obsessed with small diaphragms. Don't worry. Don't get so focused on frequency response graphs because they only tell you so much of the story. A big part of how a microphone sounds is how it responds dynamically to the source and, and spatially to the source um, because not every microphone is going to pick up the sound in the exact same way depending on how it's placed. So you really need to try to hear the mics. And again, don't be obsessed with looking at the graph. Don't be obsessed with something that sounds big or full. You know, be be leery of things that market themselves as big, full, fat sounds. And also be leery of things that talk about how they're, you know, oh, they're a throwback to microphones of yesteryear with this big, fat, warm sound, just like Frank Sinatra. Right? Because again, if you listen to a lot of those old recordings, they're not nearly as fat as you probably remember. All right, number one. So again, not, these weren't in any particular order per se, but uh, this is, I think, a good one to end on. And uh, this is perception. So let me tell you a story about perception and how it has affected me recently. So I've been going through this process and we've been talking about, you know, okay, why is there so much low end? And I've been trying to make changes in my own studio. I've been trying to think, okay, what can I adjust? You know, I usually record drums with these mics and, you know, I often will record vocals with these, you know, five different mics are sort of my go-tos and, you know, I like these preamps for these things. And is there anything that I can just make, you know, tiny changes with? Because a big thing that you should take away today is that these types of issues, none of it is ever 
just one thing. It's never just one thing. You know, it's a combination of things because, you know, we've listed 10 problems today or 10 issues, 10 factors, if you will. And if each of these factors only contributes one dB, that's, you know, that's 10 dB. That's a pretty significant change, right? I mean, think about adding 10 dB of EQ on something. That's a lot. That's a noticeable, that's a very noticeable difference. So, I uh, I recently was working on a mix, and I spent about a day and a half working on this mix. And I had listened to no other music. I'd listened to, you know, I didn't even, I don't even think I watched TV that night. You know, I had basically been totally immersed in this mix for a day and a half. And that's all I had heard, and I really focused on trying to get the drums uh, the way that I wanted them to sound. And I was really happy with the end result. And, you know, they ended up being a little bit brighter than... Uh, you know, the raw tracks I ended up taking out, a, you know, a good amount of low end and brightening them up. And, but in the end of the mix, it sounded really great. And I've always thought this whole time, you know, this particular mix I was working on was recorded on uh, one of the drum sets that I have here in the studio. So I thought, oh, it's not my drums. I mean, I know my drums. They're, they're nice maple shells and they are, they're nice and bright and articulate. And, you know, my room isn't too fat. I've got good bass trapping and, you know, I designed my room from scratch and so I can rule those things out, right? Well, so I'm thinking of all the other things, the mics and the pre's and all these other parts of, uh, you know, the, the positioning of the mics and all these things. So, uh, basically what happened is I had worked on this mix. I hadn't really listened to anything else. And the next day after this mix, I had a drum session. So the guys come in, you know, we're setting up stuff and he says, uh, the drummer says, Hey, can I play around on the kit a little bit? And I said, sure, get comfortable, do what you got to do. So I'm out there, he sits down at the kit and he starts playing. And immediately I thought to myself, wow, those drums sound way too fat or man, this room sounds dark or, you know, it's all these new thoughts and exp and like sounds were flooding my ears thinking holy crap maybe maybe it is in the room maybe it is the kit and it's like in my mind i was biased and i thought oh it's not the kit i've never thought that in the past i've never thought oh this kit is you know too dark or too fat i've never thought that it's always sounded nice and clear and articulate to me but after two days or a day and a half of working on this other mix uh, and focusing a lot on the drums of this mix, suddenly what sounded a certain way in my mind to me didn't sound that way in real life anymore. And when I heard the kid, I thought, man, it sounds dark. It sounds dull. It sounds too fat. It sounds, you know, so I wasn't able to remove the room. I never thought it was going to be that, you know, I thought it was going to be other things. So in fact, I started thinking, okay, well, let's, let's make some measurements of the room, you know, let's maybe try different heads on the drum kit, you know, maybe let's try tuning the, tuning the drums up a little bit, you know, maybe that will help. And so it got my mind to think about all these new things. Um, just from a simple shift, it was almost as if, as if overnight, I mean, literally my perception changed from what I thought my room sounded like my own equipment sounded like to something new, um, because of the environment that I'd been in listening to that other mix. So I want to emphasize how important, uh, and how, volatile our perception is when it comes to this type of thing. You know, it's very easy to record something and hear it a certain way, especially even something like acoustic guitar, because acoustic guitars can sound very different sitting there playing them 
uh, or even sitting there looking at them than they do under a mic. Um, proximity effect can alter the way we hear it. And sometimes when we record something, uh, our brains will almost sort of alter the sound of it in our mind and think, oh yeah, that sounds great. Even if there's too much low end and it can be very sensitive to how loud we have the speakers turned up in the control room. You know, if we're listening on headphones, you know, if we're the one who played it, you know, all kinds of factors can, can adjust how we hear these things and our perception and our bias. So it's really important to keep that in mind that our ears are biased and depending on how we, I mean, so many factors, our control room, our speakers, how loud our speakers are, even if we're in the perfect control, you know, this theoretical, perfect reflection-free control room, our ears are not linear and they hear things differently at different volumes. So even that can change our perception. So all in all, this whole podcast is about, you know, low-end issues and why we have to make these things. And in truth, there are so many factors. I could probably keep going on and on and on about them. Uh, but I hope this has given you some things to consider about low end. And maybe you don't feel as crazy. Maybe you don't feel as bad about low end because I really think it's something that people don't tend to talk about a lot. It's just like, oh, yeah, you know, I use high pass filters all the time. And, you know, but we never talk about why. Why do we have to high pass filter so many things? Why, why do we have to cut low end? Why do we boost top end? Why? You know, isn't, isn't the goal that we put up a mic on something, we hit record and it sounds perfect and we don't have to touch it in the mix. Isn't that the, the ultimate like ease and, uh, and, and like pleasure from being an engineer where you put up a mic on something, you move the mic, you pick the right mic, you position it in the right spot. And that's the sound that you don't even have to touch. I mean, cause I think that for a lot of us, that is a goal and it is for me. You know, I would love to not have to spend time EQing things as much, or I would love to spend time not having to EQ something, you know, um, you know, where, where a high pass filter is not used as a means of thinning something out and instead is just literally a filter for low end rumble. And that's all you're using it for. You don't have to use filters or shelves to clean up the low end or the low mids. You don't have to do that. Um, so to me, I think the goal in a lot of this is to have a sound that is balanced. You don't have too much of anything, which leaves you room to add low end or cut low end or add top end or cut top end, you know, where you get these balanced types of sounds. And I think that's a big goal for a lot of people. So hopefully you consider all these factors and hopefully they'll help you get tighter and cleaner mixes. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. As always, you can check out the blog at recordinglounge.blogspot.com. You can sign up for our free mailing list, our guaranteed no-spam mailing list, recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up. Uh, the website is still in the works. Uh, I'm still working on a website for the Recording Lounge so I can get rid of the blog eventually and just have the Recording Lounge podcast. I do have the domain registered, as you can tell, so that's that's good. I'm still working on the website, but uh, you can also check out our YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash recording lounge for cool videos that I post. And uh, you can check out the Facebook uh, page facebook.com slash recording lounge uh, <laughs> there's a lot of links that are very similar um, and as always you can send me emails comments questions show suggestions at 
recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. I appreciate all the comments and the questions. Uh, I love corresponding with you guys over email. I try to respond as fast as I can. It surprises me sometimes how people will email me and I'll respond and they'll say, oh, I can't believe you responded. You know, I, uh, I mean, I actually do check that email every single day and I try to respond to every single email. It might take me a little while sometimes when I get uh, loaded up with work, but uh, I always try to respond to every email I get. And if I don't, I apologize. Uh, you know, the schedule gets crazy. What can you say? So I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your month. I will talk to you next time.